If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 and 10 and 11. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants tremble. The, for the of the Lord is coming near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness spread upon the mountains. A great, powerful army comes. There has never been from of old, nor will be again in them in ages to come. Fire devours in front of them, and behind them flame burns. Before them the land is like a garden of Eden, but after them a desolate wilderness. And nothing escapes them. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice at the head of his army. How vast is his host! Numberless are those who obey the Lord's command. Truly, the day of the Lord is great, terrible indeed. Who can endure it? Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. I am deeply relieved y'all came back. (laughs) The risk of a sermon series is that people can opt out after the first episode. Week two of our look at eschatology, the study of last things, continues today, and I must give thanks to Reverend Kelsey Grisham, my Methodist colleague who ministers in one of the few states that regularly competes with ours as the reddest in the nation. She ministers in Alabama, and she planted the seeds that grew this sermon. A reminder that eschatology is the study of last things, how we think about and orient ourselves towards whatever may come. It is not just a religious subject, it is also a scientific field of study. There are scientists whose whole job it is to look at the data and available evidence and decide on the most probable ways that the world will end. And it turns out there are a lot of ways the world might end. To begin, let me strongly encourage you to not explore the internet for the most likely ways the world will end. (laughs) 
that is time you will never, ever get back. There are quite a few things that we have no control over that worry some folks about the world ending, like black holes, vacuum bubbles, and asteroid events that could wipe us all out. In fact, just a few weeks ago on July 26th, a headline in the Washington Post read, it snuck up on us, scientists stunned by city killer asteroid that just missed Earth. According to data from NASA, the 57 by 130 meter rock that zipped by our planet with, was within less than one-fifth of the distance to the moon. Scientists describe this as uncomfortably close. <laughs> I guess it's a technical term. Alan Duffy, the lead scientist at the Royal Institution of Australia, said it was a sign of how much remains unknown about space and a sobering reminder of the very real threat asteroids can pose. There's also the possibility of an extraterrestrial invasion. You can imagine when aliens show up, don't like the look of us, they decide to zap us all dead. I mean, we don't even like us, so it's conceivable. Then there's the threat of being annihilated by the beings who live here already. On August 29, 1949, the Soviet Union detonated its first nuclear device at a remote site in Kazakhstan, and all of the sudden, America wasn't the only nuclear power anymore. I'm guessing there are more than a few of you who, as schoolchildren, watched Duck and Cover, a film starring the animated hero Bert the Turtle, shown in schools to educate children on how to protect themselves in the case of atomic attack, in which students were to make like Bert, duck under tables or desks, desks and tightly cover the backs of their necks and faces. It's easy to critique those duck and cover drills as silly, a child's school desk is no match for an atomic bomb, but historians argue that these civil defense drills in schools would later fuel anti-war and anti-nuclear activism. And we can see the same thing happening with active shooter drills in schools and the growing movement for gun sense in America, led in large part by students who refused to let the NRA normalize school shootings. We are in a time of rapid technological development, technology which is usually intended for good but could easily be used for harm. In the age of quantum computing, artificial intelligence that we create could develop a value system that is very different from ours. We might be scanned and without any malicious intent, notice they, this artificial intelligence might notice that we are made up of atoms that might be utilized to build something else. And they might harvest the entire human species just like we might harvest a forest of trees. But really, artificial intelligence, intelligence isn't really as big of a threat as we are to ourselves. Hair trigger, uh, hair trigger alert is a US military policy with roots in the Cold War that enables the rapid launch of nuclear weapons. Missiles on hair trigger alert are maintained in a ready for launch status, staffed by around the clock crews and with planes that can be airborne in as few as 10 minutes. By keeping land-based missiles on hair trigger alert and nuclear armed bombers ready for takeoff, 
America could launch vulnerable weapons before we are hit by incoming Soviet warheads. That was the thought. This helped ensure retaliation and was seen as a deterrent to a Soviet first strike, a concept known as mutually assured destruction. The US no longer keeps its bombers armed and ready to take off, but we still keep 450 silo-based nuclear weapons and hundreds of sub-based weapons on hair-trigger alert. Beyond the terrifying consequences of the policy itself, it's now crystal clear that some really big assumptions were made about the stability of the person in charge of giving the order to push the big red button. There's also a growing concern that comes from how we've democratized technology, which is cool, but also means that potentially dangerous software could be in anyone's hand. We could have a do-it-yourself CRISPR plague or someone could develop designer deadly pathogens. And all of these ways the Earth could end, we could end, um, we haven't even talked about climate change, which tens of thousands of scientists and more than 100 nations have concluded is overwhelmingly caused by humans. To be frank, at this point, even I am tired of describing doomsday scenarios. And this is not exactly an uninformed congregation. So I'll just say that if scientists were to summarize the effects of climate change by quoting a few excerpts from our good buddy and favorite doomsday prophet, Joel, they might have chosen today's text let all of the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Fire devours in front of them, and behind them a flame burns. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden, but after them, a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their signing, shining. Who can endure it? Who can endure it? This is when eschatological belief that includes a second coming and a rapture of true believers really doesn't sound that bad. Let's just grab our bug out bags and go. Given the chaos, the evil, the potential for so many things to go wrong, the irreparable damage we've already caused, it doesn't seem like too bad of an idea for the world to end that way. At its best, this is how eschatology that includes the second coming and the rapture might be interpreted, to see it as a great mercy. But of course, this is a mercy we cannot bear. Wars and rumors of war, nation rising against nation, famine and disease, and then this idea that it will only stop if God turns on the great cosmic vacuum in the sky and sucks some of us up into heaven. But the possibility of God abandoning some of us because we don't believe certain things seems profoundly ungod-like. I mean, what happened to the policy of no child left behind? Anything less is no mercy at all. 
This is also true of eschatology that includes a helpless hopelessness that the world will end in a ball of flames because we cannot pull our acts together, which would be better than being forced to live underground because the air is unbreathable and all of the topsoil has been blown away, leaving nothing from which life can grow. It is seductive to think that it would be better for everyone and everything if the earth just takes care of itself, implodes, for, for all of us to not have to suffer a world that is unrecognizable. This too might be considered a great mercy. But it is also a mercy we cannot bear. Who here can abide the thought of our children missing the treasures of this world? Who can stomach the thought of denying someone the joy of walking barefoot in the grass or feeling the sand retreat as the wave returns to the ocean? To lose such wonder is no mercy at all. And to live in either paradigm isn't biblically responsible or particularly faithful at least not according to scripture. The very small book of Joel is often overlooked or selectively quoted, but it does offer us a word on eschatology. The book begins with a four-part introduction. First, an explanation that this is a word from God through the prophet Joel. Next is a call for the attention of the entire community and a rhetorical question asserting that Something has happened that has not happened in the memory of anyone present. Following this is a command to tell the children about it and to keep that telling going throughout posterity. As readers, we ask, what is it that has happened that is worthy of such telling and retelling? We don't have to wait long to find out. The fourth part of the introduction answers the question by telling of the crisis. A plague of locusts. The text we read about is about that plague, and it sounds like the people believed it was the end times. Darkness, destruction, desolation. As is usually the case in biblical storytelling, deliverance comes after the people are called to and engage in prayer and fasting. We often think of this as describing a religious magic trick. As long as we grovel before God, then things will turn out okay. But this is not about groveling. Prayer and fasting are the spiritual disciplines people have used over the centuries for discernment, a time of examination of head and heart. It is not hocus-pocus, but actually quite practical. When taken seriously and intentionally, the purpose of spiritual practices like prayer and fasting is to center us, to give us space for processing, for reflection, and ultimately inspire us to change our daily living. This is indeed what happens in the book of Joel. The people pray and fast. They turn away from idols. They are reminded that how they live matters and that tragedy does not have to have the last word. 
Behind the book of Joel is a story about crisis and deliverance. The story has been shaped into something of a liturgy so that future generations can hear the story once again and also discover what to do in their times of crisis. Huh. That sounds like us. And the good news is, like, we're already kind of in the process We've already been issued a call to prayer and fasting. It started last week. Luca, our worship leader, asked us to do just that. Seven-year-old Luca called us to meditate on the beauty of the earth and all of creation. Let me remind you what he said. Think about trees, animals, fish, what did you think about? Think about these beautiful pictures. What would happen if they disappeared? Then he lamented, as prophets do, that he is worried that unless we change our ways, this is exactly what will happen. Then he issued a call to fasting, posed in a question. Will you help me? Will you help me save the world? Saving the world certainly calls for a fast. A fast from the distractions, the excuses, and the lies that would have us believe our actions are too small to matter. A fast from isolationism and nationalism. A fast from ways of living that are killing us and the only world we know. A fast from blurred living and hopelessness. And this morning, Charlotte used her prophetic voice to remind us of our eschatological orientation, that we trust God to be God, that we believe all things will be made right, and we are to do our part by giving help, being generous, and refusing hopelessness. Talk about eschatological statements, both communal and personal. I think we all know who the real preachers are here. Our children are calling us to lean into our claim that we rest in the sure and certain hope that in the end, love will see us through. Give help. Be generous. Be not dismayed. Luca and Charlotte seem to believe that we can do this. We cannot disappoint them. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.